Welcome to the Bridge Church Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. If you're enjoying this podcast, please help us out by rating it. And don't forget to subscribe. Now, let's get into this week's message. Well, hey guys, I have uh, the extreme honor of introducing the man that's going to bring the scriptures to you today. Um, today, the guy that's bringing us the scriptures is actually not just my father, but the father of our church. Um, a lot of you guys may not know this, um, but I, I did not plant the bridge. Um, 15 years ago, my dad and my mom uh, felt called of God to plant a church in Spring Hill that will reach people for Christ. And so uh, they came in, parachuted in, rubbed two sticks together, and planted a church. And over those first five years, um, everything that has ever happened at the bridge came out of the sacrifice um, of my dad and my mom. A uh, li- little story about dad. For the five years that my dad was the pastor of the bridge, um, he willingly never took a salary and gave so much of himself to his church that it actually put him in a counseling chair. And, uh, and so today, we are all reaping the benefits of his sacrifice. And so, Bridge family, would you please help me right now show him how much we honor him for his sacrifice as I welcome him to the stage, Rick Howerton. Come on. It is such an honor to be here, and thank you for that. Um, the Lord has done it all. Um, I get to watch from afar and see what God is doing in your lives. And it, Would you do me a favor? Um, obviously, I've been gone from this place a long time, and God is touching you through the leadership here today. Would you thank them for what they're sacrificing? Uh, men, on this Father's Day, I want to talk to you about faith. Um, faith is what gives us salvation. Uh, faith is the stuff that miracles are made of. Uh, faith is what gives us hope in hopeless times. Faith, men, is what keeps us going sometimes. It's what keeps us going when we lose a job. It's what keeps us going when a family member um, turns uh, sideways. It's what keeps us going when it seems nothing else can keep us going. All we have is faith, and faith leads to hope. And so I want to talk to you about faith today, guys. And first, I just want to say thank you for your faith. You may not know this, but the Bridge Church is one of the fastest-growing churches in the United States of America. And that's happening, and I believe, because men in this church are being godly men. They're being men of faith. You may wonder, do men really make a difference in the family and their influence? And I think the best thing I can do is give you some real stats. When a child in a given home comes to Christ, about 3% of the time the household comes to faith. When a wife and mother comes to faith in Christ, about 17% of those households come to faith in Christ Jesus. But when the father and husband in a household comes to Christ, 90% of the time the rest of the family comes to faith in Christ. That's pretty astounding if you think about it. Guys, we have a very important role to play, and faith is what keeps us moving forward. So I want to talk to you this morning about continuing to be faithful men, live a life of faith, but most of all, thanking you for your faith. But I would like to unpack faith a little bit if I could. Now, my first reminder of real faith in my life is how I married the most incredible woman on planet Earth, and please tell her I said so. If my wife were here, you'd look at her and go, How did a guy like him get a lady like her? How did that happen? Well, let me tell you how that happened. It was a faith moment. Julie had been dating a guy back home in Mansfield, Ohio, when we met on college campus in Kentucky. And when we met, I thought, what 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 an attractive young woman. I mean, actually, I thought, she's hot. That's what I really thought. (laughs) And I still think so. And so 
I thought, maybe it's possible I could date her someday, but I found out she was dating some guy back in Mansfield, Ohio. Now, fast forward a few weeks, and she's going to be in a beauty pageant on campus, and she asked me to escort her. With this reminder, as she asked me, I'm asking you because I know nothing could happen between us. Is that a blessing or what? So we, I escorted her that night. We sat out talking on the steps of the college campus there till 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning. And I thought, oh, my goodness, this is an amazing woman. And as our, our, our moments went on, I thought, I wonder if it could ever be possible. So I started pursuing her a little bit. And it started seeing her kind of react a little bit. We started dating. But what I didn't realize was going to happen is this. Every time she went home for a break, she called me and said, I'm so sorry but I'm back home. And and ladies, don't use this phrase. This is just awful. I'm so confused. You ever had that used on you? I'm so confused. I'm just going to have to not see you or see the guy back home. So every time she came back on campus, we started dating again. But she called me one Christmas break and she told me, and I thought that that's, that's it. It's done. It's over. It's, we're never going to see each other again. Cause she called and said, I've been confused, but now I've got to make a decision and I've decided I can't see you or the other guy ever again. It's done. And I could tell by the tone in her voice, it was done. Well, we were seated in a concert a few weeks later after we'd come back on campus, Christian concert, very small, 450 students on our campus. So all of us were at this concert. I knew exactly where she was sitting. And I was just so overwhelmed with my love for her, I needed either closure or to marry this woman. And I thought to myself, I'll just leave and ask God to give me understanding. And as I left the place, I thought, I'll find a place out in the woods someplace, and I'll lay down under this tree, and I'll just go out there. And when I got there, I laid down and prayed this prayer, Lord, if I'm supposed to marry her, please have her show up, and I'll ask her. And if I'm not, if she doesn't show up, I'll know it's done. It's over. And I thought, well, this is going to be a done deal. She's not going to show up here. Well, listen, folks, (laughs) I don't know what time it was, but it was either late or early. And I heard footsteps and looked up, and it was Julie. And the first words from my lips are these, would you be a pastor's wife? And she said, yes, I would. And I thought, I wonder if she knows I'm talking about me. (laughs) And I said, no, I mean, would you be my wife? And she said, yes, I know that's what God wants. So that's how a guy like me gets a gal like her. Now, I want to I say to you that that was an act of faith. I had need of an understanding. I had need of God to do something. And I requested something in faith. But as we journey this morning in this conversation, I want you to keep this in mind. God doesn't always react the way we want him to. And the question for some of you men is this. Has God not reacted when I needed him to or wanted him to in a situation a child was sick and dying and died? A parent was ill and there seemed to be no hope. Someone was paralyzed in a car accident and you prayed for the miracle and it didn't happen. For some of you all this morning, you are going to be reminded that you can trust God even though he didn't do what you longed for him to do. For others, you're going to leave here thinking, I need to pray for God to do something miraculous. But let's dive right in if we could. If you've got your Bibles with you and you want to follow along, if you would want to turn with me to Genesis 17 beginning at verse 1, we're going to read a little bit about Abraham. Lots of reading of scripture at the beginning here, so hang with me. I want you to capture kind of what's happening here. This is Abraham's story. First of all, there's a promise. Beginning at verse 1, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. 
Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. Listen closely to the words that I give emphasis to. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you and I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession and I will be their God what he's saying is this from you Abraham will come children who birth children who birth children who birth children and you will be the father of a multitude of nations but in a moment you're going to realize how miraculous that was so there's the promise, and then there's an expectation, beginning at verse 9. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. Now, if you were to jump down to verse 22, oftentimes God makes a promise, but there's an expectation. And I believe he does that to prove that we're listening and that we're willing Verse 22, when he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all those born in his house, or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day. As God had said to him, Abraham was, here's where it gets interesting, 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And scriptures tell us that he was incapable because of age of birthing children. So that's the miracle that we're looking at here. Now, let's look at the outcome of Abraham's faith. Though you look at the Old Testament, you look centuries later, Romans 4, beginning at verse 17. Here's what we find centuries later. I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead, and calls into existence the things that do not exist, in hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. But here's the passage that captures my attention. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. First, let's understand what faith is. So there's, there's no confusion here. The beautiful thing about this particular term is that we're given a definition in Scripture. Hebrew 11.1 1 tells us, the King James Version states it like this, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Now what you see there are actually some legal terms. The evidence of things not seen. When we look at the word faith, here's the outcome and understanding of what it truly means. And let's understand it as it would be utilized in that era. It would be as though two people had a disagreement on who owned a property. And they took that concern to court. They're trying to decide who really owns this property. They go through the process, and the outcome is that there is a determination made. There is a finality to the decision that is made. There is an understanding that is unchangeable that has been concluded. It's as though the judge hit the gavel on the desk and said the property belongs to and a final declaration has been made. At that point, we don't question, do we? We have faith that the decision has been finalized. And no one goes again 
and questions that decision. That's the kind of determination, the finality that faith demands, is that I truly believe that the deed has been done, the decision has been concluded, it has been finalized. We think of having faith, that's how we need to think. Now, let me ask you to help me out a little bit. It says the evidence of things not seen. And I'm no lawyer, but I don't think a lawyer would go to court with invisible evidence. So the question becomes, how can I have a deep understanding that the deal has been finalized, that the truth that is declared in Scripture or that God has made known is a done deal? Well, through good witnesses, that's how. So I'm going to ask you a little interactive sermonizing here. Help me out if you would. If you've ever been to Hawaii, would you raise your hand? Been to, man, a lot of people have been to Hawaii. No need to take a mission trip to Hawaii. Now, if you've never been to Hawaii, but you believe that Hawaii exists, would you raise your hand? Wow, there's, that's a large number. Why do you believe so? Because you've had good testimony from real witnesses that it is so. Now, let me ask you this question. How many of you all have ever been to heaven? Raise your hand. Nobody? I once preached this sermon and two people raised their hand. I so wanted to catch them before they left that Sunday morning. Why do you believe that is factual? It is factual because the only book that we know that is complete truth is the Bible, and it tells us it is so. What I want you to capture is this. When an understanding is true in Scripture, it is finalized. And when God has given you a promise, it is a done deal. But now you may be asking the question, now, Rick, I get that, but I struggle with having enough faith. How much faith is really enough faith? And I want to ask you guys to kind of journey with me here. We're going to have a, a little graph come up here in just a second. Many of you have probably been told that in order to see God work, you've got to have complete faith. If you don't have enough faith, God won't be at work. And some of you all have thought, well, I would imagine I need more faith than doubt, so it needs to be at least above a five, I mean more than 50%. So let's just kind of see how it might really be. So some would be a one, some would be twos. But... Normally people are told you didn't have enough faith so God didn't work. The question is not what did someone tell you or what you believe to be true. The question is always for those of us who are followers of Christ, what does the Bible say is true? We find this great moment in history when Jesus is with his apostles, Luke 17, verses 5 and 6. And here's what it says. It says, the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. Big exclamation mark. Evidently they didn't feel they had enough faith to see God at work. And here's how the passage reads following that. Here's what the Lord said to them. If you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, which they were standing next to, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. How much faith is really necessary? Well, first of all, let's understand the mulberry tree. The mulberry tree is a large tree, has deep, deep roots going in all directions. I mean, these guys realized what he's stating is outlandishly strange. It's too ambitious. But then he says, if you had faith the size of a mustard seed, how large is a mustard seed? Well, if you took a penny and laid it on a table with Abraham Lincoln's head facing towards you, and you put the normal-sized mustard seed on the head of Abraham Lincoln, it might come close to covering his ear. A mustard seed is one of the smallest seeds on planet Earth. What is Jesus saying to them? He's saying that if you had a little over zero, that if it is in God's will, he will work with the amount of faith that you have. You don't need faith the size of the universe. 
You don't need to say faith the size of a thimble. What you need is some faith giving God the opportunity to hear your request and if it in his will to do that thing. Now, I want you to capture a couple of other thoughts real quickly. One of them is this. We needn't waver when we have faith. In fact, if we're wavering too much, we will question whether or not we have faith. In a moment, I'm going to contradict that statement. It's going to get real interesting for you. God works in mysterious ways. The passage says that no unbelief made Abraham waver. That word waver implies that we are um, having a mental argument with ourselves, that we're back and forth, that God could work. I don't think he's going to. God might be able to. I don't know that he will. Um, You know Josh, but you may have never met our youngest son, Lee. They are equally fantastic guys. Lee, on the other hand, uh, has struggled with drug addiction in the past, drug and alcohol addiction. I can't begin to tell you the number of times that my faith wavered. I can remember many times lying in bed staring at the ceiling at 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning, having not slept one wink, and saying to God, God, if you were there, you'd do something. God, if you loved my son, you'd set him free. God, if you loved Julie and I, you wouldn't put us through this. Are you going to do something or aren't you? I'm beginning to doubt you even care, God. Are you out there? Because if you cared, if you loved like you say you loved, you'd be at work right now. There was a wavering. You see, the numbers didn't add up. When I thought about the situation we were in, um, when I looked at the situation and what the past had been like, the future didn't seem to have a possibility. But I want to say something to you, my friends, and it's this. God works best when the numbers don't add up. If you think of the story of Gideon, it's an amazing story. Gideon's to go to battle against a 135,000-man army with his 32,000 warriors. Now, the numbers just don't add up. God tells Gideon to say to his men, and by the way, this is hand-to-hand combat, slashed each other to pieces, So if guys are giving an out, they're probably going to take it. Here's what God says to Gideon. Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. And 22,000 left, leaving 10,000 to go against 135,000. The numbers just don't add up. And God says to Gideon, the people are still too many. He has Gideon take the 10,000 soldiers that are left down to the drinking hole, and those who lap water up into their hands and drink it as a cup, keep them. But those who put their faces in the water and lap the water up with their tongues like a dog send them home, leaving Gideon with 300 to go against 135,000. Listen, folks, the numbers just don't add up. But as only God could do it, through breaking jars and blowing horns, 135,000 men got so confused that they slashed themselves to pieces. When the numbers don't add up, don't give up on God. Today, my youngest son has been two years clean and sober. But the numbers didn't add up. The numbers didn't add up. Now, why why would God do these things? Why does God do things that are beyond our understanding that sometimes cause us concern before they're finalized? And sometimes you're going to hear me say in a few moments, they're finalized good and they're finalized in God's will. And they're not always the outcomes we want. But why would he do these things? 
We find in the Gideon story the answer to that question. In verse 2 of chapter 7, here's what it says. The Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand. Listen to this. Lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand saved. In essence, I did it on my own. I didn't need you, God. I didn't need you. I could do it on my own. You see, when God does something that only God could do, the glory is given to God. And our primary responsibility is to make sure God is consistently given glory. Now, you may be saying to yourself, Rick, that's okay, but what if I have doubt and I have belief? Can the two coexist and we still see God through our faith Respond. This is a very interesting and important question. We go to Scripture to find the answer to that question. If we go to Mark 9, we find an interesting situation. There's a father who has a son who is demon-possessed. Let me just read it quickly for you. Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? That is, the demons trying to throw this son into the fire and other things in order to hurt him. And the father said, from childhood, and it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. And he says to Jesus, the God of the universe on planet earth, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help him. And Jesus said to him, this is amazing. Jesus said to him, if you can, like, do you not know who I am? All things are possible for one who believes. Now this father immediately realizes what's truly in his heart. And the father cries out, I believe, help my unbelief. Doubt and faith coexisting. And we know as the passage continues that Jesus does precisely what the father was requesting and drives the demons out of his son. Faith and doubt can coexist and God still be at work. In fact, if you want to write one thing down today that may help you in the future, it's this. What is faith? Faith is belief plus doubt and acting on the belief part. Faith is belief plus doubt and acting on the belief part. But realize this. God is not a genie in a bottle. We don't tell God what to do and he has to respond appropriately. Actually, we realize he is the God of the universe, and we hope to understand that what he's doing is for the best for his kingdom and for us too. You may noted, have noted uh, in the Abraham story that it said that God was able to do what he had promised, not what Abraham demanded or Abraham needed, or rather what God had promised. Now, I want to um, get in, in an awkward moment with some of y'all right now, so forgive me. I'm 60 years old, and I've had my own journey. I just mentioned my depression, my youngest son, and there have been other things that have been pretty devastating to me through the years. And uh, one of the most interesting things for me to conclude is that I didn't understand because I was not spiritually mature. That I got angry with God because I wasn't saturated in His Word enough to come to the right conclusions about the outcomes that weren't the outcomes that I longed for. Romans 12, 2 says this, Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. What that passage is saying to us is this, Be so overwhelmed and overcome and saturated in God's Word that you can understand His will even when His will is not your longing. That's what we're hearing here that sometimes we have a great longing and we're, 
we're disappointed or even angry or furious at God when he doesn't respond the way that we longed for him to. Those of you who journey with Christ closely and have come to the realization that God does the right thing even though it feels wrong to us. The spiritually mature person says, I don't understand God, but I trust you because you are God. Let me see if I can give you three. For instances, people often say, can you prove this biblically? I believe I can. It was in God's will that Stephen, a godly deacon, be martyred so that the gospel would spread throughout the world. The first Christian martyr was in Jerusalem, surrounded by Christians who had come to Christ just after the Holy Spirit had filled them and Peter had preached and thousands had come to Christ. They hadn't left Jerusalem, many of them. Stephen is martyred, and they spread throughout the world sharing the gospel. And folks, because of that, we are here today. They shared the gospel with the world. It was in God's will that a man be blind for 40 years. And here's how it reads, specifically from John 9, so that the works of God might be displayed in him. So let's take this to its fullest understanding. Let's get right down where life lives. This means there were a couple of parents who, when other little boys went out to play, this little boy couldn't go out to play. This means in that culture, this little boy couldn't be by his father's side learning his future trade because he was blind. This means there were parents and probably siblings that had to suffer with watching someone they loved deeply never be able to see the beauty of a sunset or sunrise. Yet Scripture specifically states why that the works of God might be displayed in him at a future time. He was 40 years old. But there's the most profound and amazing moment in history that proves the truth of this fact. And it is when God's Son, Jesus Christ, willingly went to the cross. In fact, so desperate was this moment for Jesus, God's Son, that he prayed in the garden that you would please remove this cup from me, God. He's saying to his own Father, please don't send me to the cross. But perhaps our prayer should end like his did. But not my will, but yours be done. Not my will, but yours be done. We need to remember that so many times in our lives, we long for the perfect life when the imperfect life may ultimately bring glory to God and accept it as what God is doing to make himself known to those who don't know him yet. It is painful. It is hurtful. But when we can see the bigger picture, and we will see the bigger picture in heaven, it makes all things right. I want to read to you a writing in closing from someone who gets it better than I ever will. And what this individual has done is they have written a few paragraphs to remind us that on the other side of this, when we're with Christ in heaven, that things will all look different than they do today. And here's how it reads. Our ignorance or imperfect thoughts and memories won't be erased as much as eclipsed, like the stars are mitigated by the rising sun. Something so dazzling is going to happen in the world's finale that its light will obscure every dark memory. Oh, happy day. 
we shall have the mind of Christ. And with the mind of Christ, we shall know fully, not halfway, but fully. While we were here on earth, we only sort of knew or partially understood that, and she quotes Romans 8, 28 part of it, all things that God kept working together for our good and the good of others, especially in the midst of painful trials. Most of the time we scratched our heads and wondered how the matted mesh of threads in Romans 8, 28 could possibly be woven together for our good on earth. The underside of the tapestry was tangled and unclear. But in heaven, we will stand amazed to see the top side of the tapestry and how God beautifully embroidered each circumstance into a pattern for our good and his glory. The parents of the little girl paralyzed in a drunk driving accident will understand. They will see how the accident touched the lives of friends and neighbors, sending out repercussions far and wide. They will see how God used the prayers of people halfway across the country and how those prayers reached relatives rippling out further than they ever dreamed. Then she gets very personal and she writes, My sister Linda will understand why God took her five-year-old daughter Kelly through brain cancer. My friend Diane will see how her multiple sclerosis safeguarded her from falling into spiritual indifference. We will understand how everything fit Everything counted. Nothing was wasted. And then she quotes Proverbs 16, 4. The Lord works out everything for his own ends, even the wicked for a day of disaster. Then she ends with this powerful, for some life-changing, for many profound statement. Every jot and tittle of life will give supreme glory to our all-wise and all-powerful God. Men, I'd just like to say to you this morning, if you need a miracle, don't hesitate to pray for it. If you've been hurt because God didn't respond the way you wanted him to in the past and you've been hesitant to pray to him and strive to know him because he didn't seem to be a good father in those moments, he is the perfect father. And for those of you men who have never moved toward faith, Realizing Jesus is the Son of God, died resurrected from the dead, and taking that step from not knowing him to being in a relation with him, that is, to become a follower of Jesus Christ, this could be the most outrageously exciting day of your life. Men, never miss a moment to be a heroic, faithful follower, living in the faith that God has placed in your heart and trusting the God of the universe because he will always give you all that you need. Men, let him be the greatest father as he truly is. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for these brothers and sisters here this morning, and I thank you that we had a chance to come together and celebrate you and celebrate the cross and celebrate the blood that was given on our behalf. And Father, as we leave here this morning, I pray that we'll continue to celebrate but also live lives of faith. Because you remind us in your word, without faith, it is impossible to please you. And oh, how we long to please you. Amen and amen.